Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, my girlfriend is upstairs asleep right now, so I'm kind of whispering this intro because I'm up way past my bedtime and I, I should have done this earlier in the day. Anyway, uh, today's guest is Dr. Araba Chinto. She is a psychiatrist in CAMH's Schizophrenia Division uh, up there in Toronto, Canada, as well as a clinician scientist with expertise in pharmacology. Her work focuses on individuals with treatment-resistant schizophrenia. In her research, she explores treatment options, barriers to accessing treatment, and epidemiological factors. <laughs> Of this population, I do not know how to pronounce that word. It's way too many syllables. Who puts that many syllables in a word? Why do we anyway? Is there is there a word sh- like that? You know how they have URL shorteners. We need a word shortener anyway. Uh, in addition to her clinical and research duties, she brings a strong advocacy lens to her work. Dr. Chinto understands the statistics: suicide rate for people with schizophrenia spectrum. Disorders is 20 times higher than the general population. Her goal is to start from a place of openness and understanding with patients and families to give them the best chance possible. In today's episode, we talk about all things schizophrenia. Uh, as I share in the episode, I have a, had a friend of mine who had schizophrenia or who still has schizophrenia. And uh, so it's, it's a personal topic to me because it's something that always has uh, confused and dumbfounded me at how someone who was so lucid and so sharp and smart uh, completely, uh, we, we just just lost him. It just feels like we've lost him to schizophrenia. Um, so I, I have a lot of questions for Dr. Cento. And uh, without further ado, Let's get into the episode. And of course, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com to work with yours truly one-on-one. If you are undergoing some type of transition, trauma, tragedy, then let's get through this together. No need for you to be struggling alone. Uh, you know, you got to invest. And I say invest because I am not cheap. This 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 podcast is, is, is free. It's free, but you can't do everything. For free, you got to come out your pocket. You wanna, you wanna mess with your boy Leo Flowers. But anyway, uh, let's get into the episode. What now? Uh, so tell us about you. You're, you're a fellow now. I don't even know what a fellow. <laughs> like, what is that? Like, I feel like the, the 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 medical industry is like tennis. Like they just make up these words like love, so so that us peasants can't. <laughs> Can't figure out who's who. Can't are you understand. a doctor or what? Like, are, can you help me? Do you know that? <laughs> yes or no? Do you have the skill to help me? Yes or no? <laughs> so, yes. So, so I am a doctor. I graduated medical school actually in 2013. 
So, whew, wow. Now looking back on it, that's been, that was seven years ago. So seven years I have been a doctor with the ability to help people with a license to help people, but not completely independent. I got my completely independent license two years ago in 2018. So that's, uh, was after finishing my specialty training or what we call in Canada and, and in the U S as well, you know, residency training. So you spend an extra five years, uh, doing specialty training in, in psychiatry. Um, but now as a fellow, so uh, I am a, both a clinical and a research fellow. So what it means is that I found a, a sub-specialty area that I want to focus in. And for me, it's schizophrenia. And in particular, it's actually treatment-resistant schizophrenia. Um, and I'll pause for a moment because before all of the med school stuff, I actually did a number of years in research. So now I'm kind of coming back to the research again and trying to... Um, pad my CV, so to speak, with more research publications and getting my my fingers back into the research area in the uh, treatment-resistant schizophrenia research area. Um, so that way, somebody somewhere will want to hire me uh, and help me make a difference in the world. <laughs> now, so, so why so specific? Uh, was there a personal story for you? Um, how, why does it resonate? Oh, I have a number of stories, uh, but the I think the main story for me is really about mentorship. So um, I won't bore you with the early years, but at one point after I was finishing my master's degree and when I decided, you know what, I actually think that I want to do this medicine thing because early on I had never wanted to be a doctor. Um, and so anyway, I finished off my master's. I thought, hmm, maybe I'll do this medicine thing. Maybe I'll go on and do a PhD. So I was looking for PhD supervisors, just kind of trolling the, you know, the internet for people around. I uh, sent out a few emails. And the one that landed was uh, from a man who then became my mentor and still is my mentor. Uh, and so he supervised my PhD. He encouraged me to apply to medicine. He supported me the entire time I was in medical school. Every summer I would come home, do some research in his lab, help to train some other students. Uh, and this is a man who has dedicated his research career, really, um, to patients with schizophrenia. Uh, and what he, I mean, he tells me many useful things, uh, but one of them was that, uh, you know, that I have, um, I have a, a gift and a talent in my power to advocate and to be a voice uh, for these patients. Um, and I, and I held that, uh, and I held that at a key time for me when I was deciding whether or not I wanted to be an uh, anesthetist like my mom or a psychiatrist um, that nobody else I knew was doing. Uh, and I held those words uh, and I, I made my choice. And then I let the, you know, educational gods decide where I would land. And, and they also chose uh, psychiatry for me. And that's, that's where my journey started in schizophrenia in particular. But why are you in Canada though, right? How you end up in Canada? <laughs> so I am I am Canadian. I was born and raised here. I've done th th many of my degrees here in Canada, um, but I actually went to the UK uh, to do my medical school. So that's where I did my medical training, um, and and that's what uh, exposed me to a, a whole different world um, in terms of I had always had an interest in in psychology, uh, behavior, mental health. Those things were always interesting me from it are interesting to me from
from a young age. Uh, but then when I got to medical school, I was like, oh, interesting. So my mother, as I said, is an anesthetist. And I've known this all my life, but I did not know until I was in my third year of medical school exactly what it was that she was doing. And I got there and I thought, oh, wow. And so I was, you know, I was flirting heavily with all of these other specialties. But um, but yeah, so I back to Canada to finish up my specialty training. And, and who knows now where the world will take me. I love it. So an anesthetist, and I can't even say the word anesthetist. Uh, that's what my she, she basically putting people to sleep before a surgery. Indeed, that, okay. indeed, she's putting people to sleep. So I knew that bit, but I didn't realize like how I didn't realize that the anesthetists are the doctors in the hospital that everyone calls when they need somebody's life saved. Nor did I even realize actually. Uh, what a role my mother played in the training of so many, um, you know, young anesthetists all across, you know, where the city that we're from, because when I was uh, in medical school, I went back there to do an elective and everybody said, Oh, Dr. DeGraff Johnson, you got a problem with your patients. You call her up. She'll, you know, she'll have your back. And, and, and that was really profound because, you know, as a, as a black woman um, in an age where, I mean, she was the only woman in her department, let alone, you know, racialized woman uh, for a number of years. And so it, uh, it was, it was quite profound for me. But not profound enough to want to be her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 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 definitely have a. Uh, when I think of a, an anesthetist, I think of somebody who's more introverted, and you seem a bit more uh, extroverted. Uh, <laughs> wanting to be with you me. should meet my mom. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's part of that 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 Ganyan bloodline, right? Indeed, uh, most yeah. definitely. <laughs> Bright colors, gregarious. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Singing all the time. <laughs> the, um, you know, when we think of, uh, you know, at least when I, when I come growing up and thinking about schizophrenia, uh, it was only in terms of people who heard voices uh, and saw things that, that weren't there and, and talked to Jesus. Uh, but, you know, as obviously as I've gotten older and, and more research, it, you, you know, you learn that there's so many different types of, schizophrenia can you can you define what schizophrenia is and then uh the different subtypes please so i can give you the exam answer of what schizophrenia is um and i can even give you an answer that maybe your listeners would kind of want to hear in terms of like okay so if i'm sitting on the bus how do i determine if that person has schizophrenia or if that person does um but but I won't, or at least I'll, I'll pause before I do, uh, because as I work more and more in this field, what I am realizing is that what we call schizophrenia is is completely varied and um, heterogeneous. So like you said, what we think of is, is people who are kind of hearing voices, that person that you, street, uh, that you see in the street kind of standing and, and yelling and saying, you know, I am God or whatever it is, or, or the tinfoil hat. Uh, I, I would assume that to you, you know, your readers would have heard of, you know, the people who are wearing the tinfoil hat because they're trying to prevent the whatever it is, raise that kind of thing. Um, and so, but, but it's also so many other things. And so the traditional categories uh, had, uh, had us calling people, you know, paranoid schizophrenia. And so those are the people, you know, who would think, oh, you know, uh, the CIA is plotting against me. Oh, they're watching me through the walls. They're monitoring me through. Oh, every time I, I move this glass, it means that somebody is watching me. Oh, if I, if I you know, eat red, whatever, uh, then it means that somebody is being hurt somewhere. Whatever, you know, those kinds of things where they are... Um, worried about their safety where they think that people might be kind of out to get them or out to harm them. Um, 
the other thing that I think people don't always appreciate, but people will see, so again, you're sitting on the bus and you see, um, is this disorganized schizophrenia. And that's a really hard one because so with those people, uh, we, we, we use the term thought disorder. So where you and I are having a very fluid conversation, you say something, I understand it. I uh, reciprocate appropriately with something that you also understand. Um, with our patients who are kind of uh, have a disorganized picture, um, it, it is, it's really difficult to understand them. They, they're often vague or they can't get their words out. They have what we call thought blocking. And so I ask you, Leo, how are you today? Okay, or, 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 you know, whatever it is, it's, it's really quite difficult. Oftentimes, there's a real lack of hygiene. And that's why I say, you know, sitting on the bus, because, you know, these people are, are often, you know, might be urine soaked or, or feces, haven't washed, that kind of thing. And you think, oh, how is it possible that they could be that way? But, but just so disorganized, that they can't, you know, quite keep it together in the way that, that, that somebody else might do. Uh, and so I'll, I'll circle back now to your question, because uh, in terms of the symptoms, the things that we see, the things that we as psychiatrists, you know, kind of want to see in our ticky box. So um, the, we have our positive symptoms. And so those are the things like uh, the things that we hear. So those auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations, perceptual disturbances. Uh, we have delusions and there are big categories of delusions. So like I said before, those persecutory or what the, you know a layperson would call a paranoid delusion, um, grandiose delusions. I am God. I am friends with Kanye West. I am Kanye West, whatever these things are. You know, people feel that they are special or different or chosen. I have been chosen to be receiving these messages. So we call those grandiose delusions. Sometimes, and I don't think we talk about it a lot, but people will have somatic delusions. So that's around your body. So thinking perhaps, oh, you know, there, there might be something growing inside me. One that I've been seeing a lot recently is um, uh, I've had a few women now who say they kind of believe they have this pregnancy uh, inside them. They, they believe that they're pregnant and this baby is growing, but they've also believed this for five years and yet nothing has come. And, you know, so these kind of somatic uh, delusions as well. People will have the, the experience of people, you know, putting kind of thoughts into their head or, or taking thoughts out of their head or having their mind or their body controlled. So those are the types of symptoms that um, that we you know, can ask you about that you can often identify. Um, and those are the things that are the hallmarks of schizophrenia. And uh, the opposite, perhaps, to the positive symptoms are what we call negative symptoms. And so um, there are a number of those and, and, and how that will manifest for, again, for your, for your listeners or um, it would be, you know, somebody who's not kind of motivated to get up and do the things that they would normally do. Uh, you think, how is it possible that you could just be sitting here on the couch and smoking cigarettes for 20 hours a day, whatever it is. Um, they often say sometimes that they, they uh, negative symptoms are, are those, um, for people that, that kind of can't find joy uh, in, in things that they used to find. Uh, oftentimes, they, those people who aren't able to speak so well, who aren't able to kind of produce the words or the thoughts, they call it elogia. That's also considered a negative symptom. Uh, 
Other things that I think uh, your listeners might not know about are cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia. And so we know, um, you know, you and I educated, able to kind of, you know, finish high school and, 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 and do our university degrees, that kind of thing. Uh, we're on the ball, our concentration is good, our attention is good, um, but our patients with schizophrenia actually struggle with some of those things. And there's some, some key features around their cognition uh, and concentration and attention that are are lower than the average bear because of the illness. Um, and there are a few other things that kind of come in there, but those are the, the main categories of things that we think about um, with respect to um, uh, schizophrenia symptoms. So apologies, I rambled there, but uh, it's, a, no, no, it's it, close it's to my all, heart. <laughs> it's all very informative and it's one of those things that, you know, it's not, tar- it's not trending right now, right? The depression is trending, uh, uh, you know, uh, suicide is, is now uh, getting some attention and, and, and trending. I hate to use trending, but uh, I feel like every, you know, couple years, we, uh, the public picks a disorder that they, they want to focus on, like narcissism all of a sudden mm-hmm. is every book and every magazine article, are you dating a narcissist? So, um, <laughs> but, but schizophrenia is one of those things where, uh, you know, we just kind of chalk up to some crazy person talking to themselves and, and uh, we don't, uh, for the most part, um, understand the subtle nuances of it. I think one, and correct me if I'm wrong, like it's such a small percentage of the population uh, have schizophrenia. I think it's like 1%, but most of the people who are homeless are uh, do have schizophrenia. Um, can you speak to that? Oh, I could speak to it for a long time. This is a part of the reason for, so part of it is because of the symptoms. Um, people have these symptoms of of feeling fearful uh, of the people around them that uh, they can't uh, you know trust the people around them. They feel as though they're being monitored. Um, you know they they go from from stable housing and they feel as though the sounds that they're hearing, those perceptual disturbances that they're having, they think, oh, it's actually the neighbors next door, it's the neighbors upstairs, or the neighbors downstairs. If I just move to a different place, then then maybe that's okay. Well, if I move to this different place, some people will be kind of you know aggressive or angry towards and they yell at the neighbors and say. Was you? You're the one who's making these noises, that kind of thing. And so, by by nature of of, of their symptoms, they kind of end up moving out of housing uh, to nowhere else, you know, other than to become street involved. Um, another thing that I see often, and, and as I said, you know, so this is my my bugbear is that is that sometimes sometimes families don't know how to support a patient with schizophrenia, and sometimes families don't understand what it means and I should spend the time to like actually make make this thought more articulate because it's a thought that I have all the time so schizophrenia as well as some of our other mental illnesses schizophrenia has a voice in a way that that a cancer doesn't have a voice so this thing is growing inside you um it's terrible you're sick everybody acknowledges it it is it's identified as the disease you go for your treatment that is it you might feel sad about it whatever but but the cancer itself isn't speaking schizophrenia has a voice and it comes out in me saying i don't trust you i'm afraid of you you're a bad person you're looking at me the wrong way and so when when families hear this they take it personally what are you talking about, Leo? I, I, I'm your father. I'm your mother. Whatever it is, you know. I'm, I'm your sister. I, I'm, I'm your friend. Ah, ah, stop it! Stop it! Just, just stop saying that. Why? Why would you say that? And and it and they burn bridges because parents take it or, or families kind of take it personally 
and don't realize that these words are the illness. The words are not just their loved one being oppositional. And so I think too often what I see, you know, in, in, in the work that I do uh, on inpatients and with uh, outpatients as well, is that they become disconnected from family because families just feel like, well, you know, well, they, they told me that uh, that they hate me. They told me that they think I'm the devil. Well, what am I supposed to do? Um, and, and, and that's it. And so I, I think there are loving families out there who don't know enough about what the illness means or know enough about how their loved one is suffering um, and kind of take the symptoms at face value. And I think people get disconnected from their housing, from their supports um, that way. And that's what makes me sad about, about our patients who are street involved. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that there are, um, like you said, there's not, there's not a lot of, uh, not that there's not a lot of resources out there to, to help a person, but when we, you know, from what I've read, the number of, of people who are, uh, who have schizophrenia, like it, there's no age or gender or demographic specifically, but n- knowing that life stressors can, um, uh, you know, trigger it and, and, and increases the likelihood of triggering, especially if you have a genetic predisposition to it. I would imagine then that, the, you know, the people who have the fewest resources were seeing a higher incidence in it. Um, one of the things that drew me to uh, looking at schizophrenia was the number of black men uh, who have it and, uh, and how that manifests because uh, we also know that like about 50% of people with schizophrenia also attempt to end their lives. Um, and so there's a strong link between suicide and schizophrenia, but there's also a strong link between uh, schizophrenia and people who already are struggling with the resources because uh, that adds stressors and increases the likelihood of it being triggered. Does that make sense? So the bit that I'm picking up from what you said um, was the bit about the high numbers of, of kind of black men with schizophrenia. And I remember uh, learning about that in, in medical school and also as a, as a resident. And, and I remember like having my back up being like, Whoa, what are you talking about? I know lots of black people who are just fine. <laughs> um, but then more and more, you know, I, I, I looked at the research, I looked at the numbers and I realized, Oh yeah, this is a thing. And, and, and I think some of the population might use it against us, but I think what it speaks to is the trauma and the stressors. So you mentioned that these stressors can bring it out and, and, and I completely agree with you. Um, and it's really topical now, you know, uh, I'm not so sure when your, your podcast will be broadcast, but now in the wake of um, the death of George Floyd, the, the resurgence of acknowledgement around the Black Lives Matter movement, I think people are now able to realize that what we experience as Black people in this society is traumatic. And that kind of trauma can trigger an illness like schizophrenia. And so I have less of a a chip on my shoulder about hearing that statistic because I know I know, I know what it's like to be a black woman in the society and, and I can empathize with what it's like to be a black man. The, what, what is the age that we usually see an onset? Uh, it's usually like in the a, in a teenage years. And what does that tell us about the brain? 
what is that? Tell Ooh, boy, you touch on a good question. So the short answer is we do not know. There is so much we do not know about many of our mental illnesses, <clears throat> um, specifically uh, schizophrenia. So I sit, as you know, I'm, I'm doing this fellowship, and so I've done uh, research, and I sit amongst a lot of um, academics, so people who look into this work, and, uh, and, and I think there are a number of theories around that. Some people believe that uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a maturation thing, and and um, where uh, because women actually get um, will develop schizophrenia uh, a few few years later uh, than men will. So men, you'll see it kind of 18, 19, 20, 21. Women, you'll see it a bit later, 25, 26, 27, even around 30 is where they'll have their first episode of psychosis. So people um, uh, have theorized around the impacts of, of hormones uh, on the brain, around especially around sex hormones uh, on the brain. Um, there are some other theories that actually uh, look at the maturation of the of the nerve cells in the brain over time. Uh, and we know that um, brains uh, really don't kind of fully develop uh, until that uh, 18, 19, 20, even, you know, 25 time. Uh, and so is it a maturation thing? And then there are some other theories um, that kind of pull from what we know around the medications that can help treat schizophrenia um, that people think, in fact, this is actually an illness that people have from the word go, and there are changes that are happening throughout childhood, adolescence, subtle changes, things that, that uh, unless you're testing for, you may or may not even see. And that kind of the, when, when the overt schizophrenia, when the overt psychosis presents itself, that's actually the end of the process. And, and, and everything from there on in is, is, uh, might be immutable. Um, so there are a lot of theories on it, uh, and at the end of the day, um, we need people who are dedicated to this research to, to understand more about it. And that speaks a bit to what I was saying about this kind of heterogeneous uh, composition of patients with schizophrenia. We call it all schizophrenia, but actually are there, are there kind of different types that can be, that be teased out either by the way they present or perhaps by what's going on in, in one's body? You know, that's interesting because I actually would have thought that women would have uh, seen symptoms of schizophrenia earlier than men because uh, the, their brain matures faster. So I would have thought that, uh, you know, the, the onset, it has to do with the fact that the prefrontal cortex isn't developed yet in men um, around that age. I, I didn't realize that uh, women got it a little later. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that is interesting that there might be a... a uh, hormonal, like uh, you think it's probably linked to, to estrogen uh, or what hormones are we looking at there? Um, so, yeah, so definitely estrogen. There's, I, I tell you, this could be a whole other podcast in and of itself. And, uh, and there are many experts in the area, but, um, but I think it, it suffices to say that there are, uh, there are people looking at all of these avenues of at what all of these things mean. In terms of uh, meds, what, what works, what doesn't work? You know, I've, I've heard that, um, and this was fascinating to me, that it's the, the amount of dopamine in the brain. It could be too much dopamine, too little dopamine. And, you know, to me, I always thought, like, dopamine was a good thing. Uh, but in, in terms of meds, what are the, the meds that work or at least have some effect? 
and what are the meds trying to do at a at a chemical level? So my good exam answer for you is that we know that our medications, all the medications that are effective for treating those positive symptoms of psychosis, like I said, uh, all of those medications have an effect at the dopamine 2 receptor. Uh, interestingly, which was categorized uh, by a scientist here at uh, in Toronto, uh, just a few floors down from where I am. But anyway, beside the point. So the dopamine 2 receptor, those medications block the dopamine receptor. Um, <clears throat> and that's what we know. Uh, and as many of our medications in, uh, in psychiatry, uh, that finding, that initial finding was serendipitous. So they were trying all these medications, uh, and uh, and one of them uh, happened to make people with uh, who had symptoms of schizophrenia better. And then they kind of went back and they looked at the chemical composition of this medication, and they said, ah, dopamine. And so sensible scientists everywhere started making other medications, all with this uh, dopamine effect, um, which were then helpful for schizophrenia. There are other uh, chemical combinations um, that make some medications work a little bit better uh, and uh, some not so much at all. However, the key factor is, uh, is that dopamine blockade. And so working back from that, we then think, okay, if blocking dopamine helps, then it must be in excess of dopamine. Uh, but we now know that that's slightly simplistic um, and that uh, you know, there's a sense that, that our illnesses are really just kind of chemical uh, imbalances. And I think it's a bit too simple um, because the brain is so complex, because there's so much we don't know. We know that, uh, so in schizophrenia, for instance, dopamine plays a role or in depression, you know, serotonin we know plays a role. And still it's, it's not just as much as it being a chemical imbalance. You know, that, that makes sense because, you know, it could be too much, too little absorption rates. Um, uh, and, and just like, uh, like you said, there, it's like a 360. What I love about, um, you know, looking at uh, mental illnesses is uh, it requires a, like a 360 approach. What's going on genetically, hormonally, environmentally, uh, and what's happened evolutionarily out I think part of what I've been trying to rack my brain over is, uh, you know, this idea that we as a species are supposed to be evolving, meaning like in, in a sense, uh, in, interpreted as we're getting better. And I'm like, what role did schizophrenia or does schizophrenia play in our evolution? Uh, it, surely it, it, there must have been um, uh, a use for it at some mm-hmm. point, I would imagine. You know, I- I'm a bit ashamed to say that I've never actually really thought of that. But now that you say it, that's actually a really good point. Like what would, what would be the reason that this would continue? Ooh, I don't, I mean, I know I meant to be a a scientist. I meant to be an academic. I don't think I should postulate, but you know, I think about the things uh, that I see sometimes in, in our patients. And again, like I, I have a biased view. I work in a tertiary care hospital with the sickest of the sick who kind of can't be out on the street or aren't out on the street. And so, but but all of us know that there are people who have symptoms um, that are kind of out and about, that are living their lives and, and not causing any trouble at all. And so, you know, when you speak about that creativity bit earlier, I wonder, like, is 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 that the evolutionary component? You know, that kind of disinhibition in the mind that allows people to, you know, not be concrete like us, you know, scientists? I wonder. I wonder. Well, uh, I, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Dr. Robert Sapowski. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of him? 
and mm-hmm. uh, and he opened my brain to looking at you know the evolutionary basis for things and um, and when I think of like uh, like something like autism, where somebody's able to like hyper focus but also be able to communicate in a very like genuine and present manner. Um, there are things to be learned from that. And, and I haven't figured out what that is, but uh, if, you, if you subtract the, the, um, the, you know, for use of a better word, the, the awkward social interactions that you see in a lot of people who um, have uh, autism, uh, their ability to hyper focus on a thing for hours mm-hmm. is something mm-hmm. that people are taking drugs to do. You know, I mean, you know, you're in medical school and, and people are starting to be lawyers. Like, we're actually medicating ourselves to generate a lot of these symptoms that we see in people with mental illness. And, you know, even to be creative, people smoke weed. I want to be creative. And so I, I, I wonder if if it's really about figuring out how to like manage it. Right. Um, because I know like if I don't get a good night's sleep, my, I'm a different person. I'm Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And, uh, and I would imagine that there are ways that for someone who is struggling with schizophrenia, uh, even uh, with psychosis, there, there are behavioral things that they can do. Uh, uh, what have you found in, in terms of uh, the behavioral component of managing schizophrenia? Oh, so that's a really good question, you know. Um, so again, I, I mean, I have to give the disclaimer. Uh, and for me, my disclaimer is I, I work uh, in an acute care hospital. Uh, and so I work with with kind of patients who are not managing uh, out in, in the community for whatever reason. Parents are bringing them in, families are bringing them in, police are bringing them in. Um, and so usually when they come to me, uh, the management is often down to medication. Uh, and the difficult uh, thing is that uh, one of the hallmarks of this illness is what we call a lack of insight. So those patients who are experiencing voices or feeling like the CIA are after them or that their family are, are, are terrible people are trying to poison them or kill them or whatever, don't realize that it's not real. And so for me to be able to tell those people, for me just to say to you, Leo, it's not real, it's not happening, it's not helpful because it's, it is real for you. It is so very real for you. And so... And so it makes sense then that they would be kind of defensive or hiding or, or, or wearing their tinfoil hats or whatever it is they need to do. And so to answer your question around kind of behavioral strategies, oftentimes in the acute phase, um, the behavioral strategies are for the support people. So the people who are around, when they are saying this, you know, can you exercise empathy? When you do this, do you find that it makes them kind of worse or better or that kind of thing? Um, but I often also have patients, uh, I have some patients on the outpatient side who, who are better, still carrying the illness, but are better and do have a bit of insight. And so for those patients as well, they tell me, and I ask now, and I ask where I didn't ask before, I ask them all the time, what is it that got you well and what is it that keeps you well? Um, and to a T, every one of them says, every one of them who, who kind of has insight into their illness says, you know, taking my medication all the time. Like you said, having a good night's sleep. I am a strong believer in the restorative power of sleep. Um, 
and then from there, it's a bit different. Uh, oh no, hold on. I have one more thing that I think is a is a solid. Um, so the substances. So cannabis is a big thing now, and cannabis is a big thing that we see is triggering psychosis in people. And many of my out patients now say I used to use a lot of weed or cocaine or meth or crack or whatever it was, um, and it was when they stopped that 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 they were able to kind of get a little bit better control of their symptoms, a, you know, a little bit more. Um, uh, able to kind of comply with their medications and, and, and looking back on it now, they're able to say that they didn't find the substances helpful. But then after that, that's a bit different. Some of the patients that I have are actually kind of quite social. And, you know, I've, I've got a few um, that, uh, you know, are, they will do their house league uh, soccer or hockey um, at the recreation center every week without fail. That's what they do. For some of them, it's about kind of routine. You know, I do this every Thursday. I go to this group every every Wednesday, whatever it is, and, and that's it. And then other people um, are happy and are stable at home and feel comfortable and say, I'm perfectly happy sitting here. I go to, you know, we have our local coffee shop and get my coffee and my donut and I come home and I watch CP20 or, you know, our, our you know, 24 hour news channel uh, all afternoon. And, and then I go to bed and then I do it over again. Um, so it's, it was a long winded answer, I think, to your question. Uh, but I think there are a few, a few staples for people, um, medication, um, you know, maintaining uh, a good sleep schedule, um, and decreasing their substances, I think those are the key things. You know, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because a lot of times uh, we think we have to, I mean, add so many things from especially med, uh, not the meds, but the drugs, uh, like you said, uh, the, the cannabinoids and the, um, um, uh, the drinking, uh, all those different things that can, you know, put you in a different state of mind, maybe even caffeine for some people uh, mm-hmm. may, may trigger it. You know, anything that gets you too excited, too high or too low, basically, um, but I would imagine if you're if you're hearing voices, seeing things, the sleep is probably uh, one of the harder things to uh, to hone in on and and to manage. Uh, it, it, and it doesn't seem like from most of the uh, and, and tell what you found are most of the hallucinations and are, they're mostly not violent, correct? Because I, I think usually when we think about mm. it, we hear somebody screaming, yelling, we uh, we well, we got to stay away from them, but. Are they usually violent or usually nonviolent hallucinations? Uh, what would say? So a mix. If you are speaking about, um, you know, when you talk about violence, the patients themselves, uh, the people who have schizophrenia, are not, as a rule, violent. You will see them, like you said, you'll see people kind of yelling or angry. Because some people, a lot of people will say actually that what they hear, those voices that they hear are negative. They're derogatory. They're telling them unpleasant things. Uh, and, it's, and it's either frightening or angering to them or just so persistent that they've had enough and they, and they want to stop. Uh, but you're right um, that our patients are not, as a rule, violent and are oftentimes uh, subject to violence. And I think it's the way they kind of get... Uh, uh, portrayed in the media, uh, as well as, you know, um, film and television, that kind of thing, uh, that makes for a, a nice salacious story. Um, but uh, our average patient with schizophrenia uh, is not, is not violent. Have we, you know, because we, t- we talked about dopamine and serotonin, uh, are there, and we haven't talked too much about 
diet and nutrition, are there nutritional uh, ways of managing or considerations for managing uh, schizophrenia? So there are uh, there are actually a few things that are out there uh, in terms of of uh, developing research. Um, I, I won't speak to them because I that's not my area. But I know that there are people who you know I, I had somebody come and speak to me and say, oh you know uh, Dr. Chinto, I think that uh, you know the keto diet will help, or I think you know omega threes will help. Um, I think within those thoughts or I guess within those areas, there is, you know, we know that there is a, a role for inflammation uh, in schizophrenia. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know omega-3s help with inflammation. And so, the, so you know, people will kind of take the extra step and say, ah, if I just take omega-3s, then this, then this will cover it. Or, you know, we know that there is kind of a vitamin imbalance here. If I just take, uh, you know, B12, then, then it will cover it. There is not enough evidence um, out there to say that that those alternative methods are things for treating schizophrenia now by any means, um, and not as a primary role. And and I would definitely be a negligent doctor if I turned and said to you, Leo, you know what? I know you've got your schizophrenia. Don't worry about the medications that we know um, are are helpful for positive symptoms. Uh, instead, um, you know, eat only carrots or whatever. I, I don't think it would be uh, right for me to say that. In fact, I would I would likely be um, struck off the register and no longer have a license. But I think those are areas that are developing uh, and that people are looking into. Um, but the one piece that I do want to add, and it's it's the kind of unsexy piece that we don't talk about, is that there are side effects to our medication. And and one of those side effects are have to do with kind of um, metabolism, uh, glucose dysregulation, weight gain. Uh, and so in that case, I actually spend a lot of time counseling people around um, both diet and exercise um, because my best case scenario was that you take your medication, you become well from this illness, uh, and, and you're able to kind of live live the life as, as fully as you want to. Um, but for a lot of people, that additional weight gain, and it can be significant, is really hampering. And so, as I said, I spend a lot of time with people um, ensuring that they, they know the best things to do. They know the, the ways that they should be eating, the ways that they can be eating, um, the types of things that they can do in terms of exercise um, to keep their weight and to keep their self-esteem at a place that uh, that allows them to feel happy. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, with exercise and, and eating right, it, you know, you're also releasing certain chemicals, you know, whether it's endorphins or, or serotonin in, into our system. Um, and, and so I guess when I was asking about the circadian rhythm in, in the beginning, I, I'm just starting to do research on, uh, I say research, Googling. I'm just starting to Google a lot of stuff about the circadian rhythm because I, I was like, why am I always craving um, sugars and sweets like in the middle of the day, like between like uh, one and four, uh, you know, somewhere up in there. And then I, I was reading about how our bodies, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, release endocabinoids uh, around those hours. And it, it makes you uh, hungry and, and sleepy and, and a bit restless if, you can't have either one. And I, I know we didn't bring you on to talk about that, but can you confirm or deny endocabinoids? 
endocannabinoids. So I, I can confirm they exist. Uh, I can confirm that I have some friends who actually do a lot of work in the area, uh, quite interesting to me. Uh, and I can also confirm that I am not an expert and could not speak to it. Um, but I definitely know uh, that it's a thing. Uh, and I'd be intrigued to hear more about, uh, about what you've been reading. Um, you know, the circadian rhythm piece, I think, uh, it is important. Um, and I, I bring my bias of being somebody who protects their sleep at all costs because I, like you, am, am Mrs. Hyde or Mrs. Jekyll, I don't remember which is the good one, uh, when I don't sleep well, um, which is a bit of a problem given that uh, as a physician, we care do all these crazy hours. But anyway, um, and so, but you know, you see, I think in, in all of our illnesses, there is a, there is a sleep component there. There's uh, sleep disruption, sleep dysregulation, uh, uh, we know that it's not ideal. And so again, um, I think what people don't realize is that we're really at the beginning uh, of of our knowledge of these illnesses, which is not to negate all of the work that has been done, um, you know, for, for years and years before, but the kinds of things that we know, for instance, about heart disease, or that we know about cancer even, or even diabetes, we don't know that in the same way around our mental illnesses. We've been, uh, you know, as psychiatrists, we're I always say this, you know, psychiatry is the unwanted stepchild of medicine. Uh, and so, the, you know, there's a lot of stigma there. The research money doesn't go there. The philanthropy money doesn't, doesn't come to us. Um, there's not... Uh, uh, you know, we've got you know, Cancer Care Canada and 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 all of these um, advocacy and 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 organizations to support the research and to understand and and to stop this you know other illnesses from impacting society and it hasn't come to psychiatry in the same way and so there's a lot still that we don't know and I think all of these things that you're touching on you know possibly alternative. Um, uh, health methods, behavioral methods, sleep, all that kind of thing. I think we're now, people are able to now kind of get their feet into it and understand what it means for each of our illnesses. Earlier, you, you talked about uh, how family interacts with somebody who has schizophrenia. Are there, uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about in that realm in terms of uh, how to improve the communication and, and, and how to uh, manage and, and communicate with somebody who has schizophrenia? Yeah, so uh, because because the illness is varied, um, the way a family communicates with uh, with their loved one who is having symptoms of psychosis, the way that we would advise that, you know, really differs. Um, and it also, it differs depending on, on where that person is in their illness. It differs depending on the symptoms that they have. Uh, but in terms of kind of evidence-based things that we know help our patients, we know that families who have a course of education around the illness, around ways to interact, around what the medications mean, around what the side effects are, around what the symptoms mean, families who get that education, those their, their loved ones do better, fare better in terms of their um, in terms of their own symptomatology, in terms of their own outcomes uh, and functional recovery. Um, you know, there are, I think the, the family piece, as I said, it's something that I, I harp on a lot. And, and there are a lot of things I think that, uh, that families don't know and families don't realize. And, um, 
And so I think, you know, wherever your, your listeners might be, if they have loved ones, wherever those loved ones are being treated, there will be some kind of family education office or family education component. And oftentimes they won't realize that it's there, but ask for it because that information is, is necessary. And there will be organizations that, you know, we're here in Canada. And so we have our Canadian Mental Health Association. Uh, in the U.S., I'm sure there are some as well. I know in the U.K., um, NICE or even kind of patient.info has a lot of information. And so um, those are places to start. I love that. Uh, I was also reading the last two questions is uh, they said that in terms of suicide, it's that they, uh, Dr. Sapolsky was saying how um, it, the more often someone's uh, schizophrenia is in remission, it increases their likelihood of attempting suicide. Can you speak to that? So I'm not sure about the more often bit, but what we know, so our patients with schizophrenia, and there are, there are a number of, of different studies out there. I think one of the ones that we did here, um, like here out of our institution, uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, showed that uh, I think more than one in 10 of uh, patients who died by suicide uh, had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And, and when they look um, at, at who those patients are, um, they tend to be younger, they tend to be male. They tend to have higher levels of education, uh, and they tend to have a degree of insight into their illness. And so we spoke about that before, where people would have these symptoms. I think, oh, I'm I'm, I'm being watched, or I think I, I'm hearing things, or whatever it is. Many of us don't realize that's not real. The ones who do, that can have a profound impact on them. And so, when somebody comes into hospital when they're acutely unwell receive their treatment, realize what they may have done, what they may have said, what they may have felt when they were unwell, realize what it means to have this oftentimes lifelong illness. I think there is, um, there's been work around uh, how that insight impacts them uh, and that's where there's a real risk for suicide. Um, you know, we have some medications, uh, the, the medication that I'm, I'm learning as I'm doing this fellowship, learning to become a specialist in uh, and, and work with patients around. So clozapine is a medication that we know actually has protective effects um, with respect to suicide for patients with schizophrenia. We know that patients, especially young patients who are engaged in these, we call first episode psychosis programs, early intervention programs, we know that their outcomes are much better with respect to suicide. Uh, and again, with family involvement and, and all of the services that an early intervention program uh, provides, those patients are better supported as they process what their psychotic episode means, process what the illness means, process what it means to be on medication for a prolonged period of time. When they have the supports around them to be able to understand that, then we know that their outcomes are better. But you are correct. Suicide is a big problem in our schizophrenia population. You know, that makes absolute sense because I would imagine if you've uh, had a, a schizophrenic uh, episode, and and then you uh, you're, you're you know you're in remission, and then you have insight into what you did and how you what you said hurt other people or what you did uh, had an impact on the community around you. Uh, the shame and guilt would would 
start to mount itself uh, and, and build up. And, and I think that uh, the more insight you have as to it, then, then the more shame and guilt you might have. Uh, so that, that completely uh, makes sense, and especially that educated piece where I, I remember even in grad school, there was a, a student who he was like a straight A uh, student and uh, that the, he had, but he had schizophrenia and he had, he had an episode and he had to take some time off, came back and then had uh, a, a, a more overwhelming episode and, and then just completely dropped out. Um, so yeah, I, I could imagine it's, it's those feelings of shame and guilt. And especially if you have a family, like you said, in a support and the people around you who really haven't done their homework and aren't supportive. And so you already have this feeling of shame and guilt and now they're layering it on, you know, they're, 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 they're stoking the fires and, um, you know, either by yelling or cursing or maybe even throwing you out the house, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that I, yeah, I think there can impact. be, I think there can be a real sense of loss for people at times. Um, and I, and I'm painting a grim picture because I always try and, and make people understand what it's like. And also I have seen phenomenal families. I have seen phenomenal support systems. I have seen friends that will go to the ends of the earth for their friends who have, um, you know, episodes of psychosis or who have the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Um, and, and for me, I have really seen the difference that that makes. And so it's both sides. Um, but I think where the education needs to happen for people is knowing that, um, that schizophrenia is a disease. It's a disease like diabetes or like cancer. Um, it, it presents differently. It acts differently, but it's not, it's nobody's fault. Um, and, and everyone deserves a chance. Is there, is there anything that we haven't talked about Dr. Chinto about Chinto about, uh, schizophrenia or it's linked to suicidality or about mental health that you feel like the listeners should know? Um, my dear, there are so many things, but you have a limit on your podcast. Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, you've spoken to some, some of the things that are, that are kind of close to my heart in this work. And, um, and I think that if there are, if there are listeners out there, or if there are patients themselves out there, um, who have episodes of psychosis, who have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, um, I, th I think there is hope. I think it's about finding your fit, finding a treatment team that works with you. It's about asking questions. It's about speaking out loud. It's about having patience. And it's about recognizing that kind of one foot in front of the other, one day after the other. And it, at a certain time, you'll be able to look back and, and recognize you were able to get through it. You know, and, and, you know, I don't want to leave people with a, with a grim picture and, and I, I'm glad you said that you'll be able to get through it. Um, cause what was also interesting is that over time, um, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, the hallucinations and the auditory, uh, auditory and, um, visual hallucinations, uh, decrease, uh, with age as, as one gets older, uh, and you become more, um, uh, you see more of a flat effect as as a person with schizophrenia 
uh, gets older. Is that correct? Have you found that? So I'm not sure that's globally true. Uh, again, like I said, so there's this heterogeneous uh, picture in schizophrenia. And so there may be some where those symptoms kind of burn out uh, and, and there may be others where they don't. And, uh, and one of the things we didn't talk about was, uh, was that another bit that's close to my heart, which is this kind of treatment resistant form of the illness um, where, where people will have symptoms that that kind of no matter what medication we give them, we'll really not be able to get on top of. And there are times where those people will have their symptoms um, throughout. Um, but again, it, it brings me back to that call on, on family or friends or supports because having symptoms, chronic symptoms, uh, is not a death sentence. It's about finding meaning in life with what you have at the time uh, and I mean, my bias as a psychiatrist then is also kind of using uh, what we know in, in, in medicine and allied health and, and alternative health even to help support you to maintain and create that meaning. I love it. And uh, I said two more questions. Last two questions. <laughs> One is, uh, are there, you know, there are movies that portray like uh, bipolar and depression and different. And then I think there's like some movies that portray like schizophrenia as there what's the biggest misperception about schizophrenia that you see uh portrayed so for me it's that kind of like violent and antisocial type and so antisocial and antisocial i mean in the in the actual kind of psychiatric clinical sense and so that's that's somebody who's kind of prone to criminality somebody who doesn't really have any uh, empathy uh for anyone uh does uh you know naughty things violent things that kind of thing so so I don't like to see those portrayals um, because it's easy for those to stick in people's mind. I think it's a lovely kind of plot twist for people, um, but I just, I don't like to see those kinds of portrayals because it's not, those aren't the patients that I see. I love it. And then last question, I ask this of all my guests, because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Dr. Chinchow? Not suicide, not today. I don't know. I don't know their story. I don't know what's made them feel the way that they are. But I know that there are, there are options. There are people. There is time that we can take. Not suicide, not today. Thank you so much, Dr. Chento. Uh, please, uh, where can people find you, link up with you, message you, or, or any organization that you feel like, or what are like, or what are resources for families and people that uh, do need help? So uh, I I work through the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Canada, uh, and so we're the uh, largest mental health institution, um, and it's I. Goodness me, I should know our website, camh, C-A-M-H dot C-A. We have a ton of resources on our website. Uh, you could connect to me if you uh, ever felt that you needed to, but also a number of other people. Um, thank you to you, and thank you to your listeners. Uh, it's been really great to chat about uh, something that, that I hold dear. I love it. Thank you, and thank you listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute 
were you calling the 1-800-SUICID number or 1-800-273-TALK or the, all the other numbers that I've listed in the show notes? There are international numbers. If you live in Canada or you live in London or Sri Lanka or wherever, Thailand, I see we got some new listeners in Thailand. Um, there are international suicide help hotlines. There are phone numbers you can call. There, there's uh, chat. If you can't talk and you, you need to text, there are emails, there are groups. You can check out the CAMH uh, website, which I'll obviously link in the show notes. Uh, let's get to, you always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Chinto. Thank you, Leo. Bye-bye.